Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Sunny Pahuja, who is a dentist in the United States and the man behind the Facebook group, Dental Investment Group. In this episode, we spend a lot of time talking and diving into various financial topics for new grads. We talk about loan repayments, investing in assets, and when is it the right time to buy a house or a practice, and much, much more. I certainly learned a lot from this chat, and I'm sure you guys will get a ton of value out of it as well. Sunny is very knowledgeable and shares a lot of very practical and important tips uh, from his experiences with us. As a general disclaimer, the advice given on this episode is just meant for more educational purposes and to get you guys thinking about these ideas and concepts. It is not really specific to your financial needs, so just take everything with a grain of salt and, and do your own research and work before you decide what's best for you and maybe consult some professionals. This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Henry Shine. With over 60,000 products available for, from consumables, CAD CAM technology, lab and large equipments, and many, many courses that they're running, you can always rely on them to be your trusted business partner every step of the way. This is my 50th episode, and it's a very special milestone to hit. Looking back at all the amazing guests that I've had on the podcast, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to talk to so many bright young stars in our profession, and I hope that you guys as the listeners are getting a ton of value out of it as well. For me, it's very special to be able to co contribute something to our amazing profession, and I'm very excited about growing as a clinician and using this podcast as a means of helping you guys grow as well. So I just want to thank all you long-term listeners. Your support has helped me continue to put in the hours of work that makes this podcast possible. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you go back and check out some of the old episodes as well, as there's been a lot of great topics that we've covered over the past 50 episodes. As always, if you have some time, I would really appreciate it if you can head over to iTunes, give the podcast a five-star rating, and leave a review. It's really helpful in growing the podcast and helping us get more exposure out there. Without further delay, I hope you guys enjoy this jam-packed episode with Dr. Sunny Pahuja. Hello and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high-quality and high-value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host, Dr. Omid Azami. So I'm here with Dr. Sunny Pahuja in the United States, who's kindly uh, given up some time on Father's Day Sunday to come and chat with us about some finances. He is the, you know, the starter of Dental Investment Group, and I'm excited to kind of get him on today to talk some finances to, you know, give a lot of value to the, you know, new grads listening to this who are, you know, kind of tossing up between student loans and like practice purchase, home purchase, investments. So Sunny, I hope you can uh, clear some of this up for us today. How we normally start off is with just a bit of an origin story. So if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you kind of got into this financial world of things, and then uh, we'll kind of take things from there. Yeah, for sure. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, but uh, I practice in Cincinnati now. Graduated back in uh, 2011 from uh, the Ohio State Dental College of Dentistry. And, you know, I've been here for about four and a half years. I worked as an associate for about two and a half of that. 
originally. And, and uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Practice ownership has its, uh, you know, ups and downs, but, uh, you know, I feel like mainly ups, which is always a good thing. Yeah. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. That's great. So what made you uh, decide to get into dentistry in the first place? Yeah. So I was actually a business major in undergrad and um, I always had this interest in healthcare, but I wasn't really sure what to do. So I came across a dentist and I came across a dental student pretty much in that same week over the summer, one of these summers. And I started talking to them, just started asking the dentist, Hey, I can, can I come shadow you? And he said, sure. I started talking to him a lot, started talking to a lot to the, uh, the dental student, just one thing after another, started talking to actually one of my friends that was actually going through the process of applying to dental school. Yeah. And it just felt like a lot of those things were making sense to me. So I said, okay, I'm going to try to look into what's, what the requirements are, what the DATs are like and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So as soon as I was starting to finish up my uh, business degree, started taking some of these uh, GECs for uh, dental school. And uh, next thing you know, I just spent a whole summer taking this OCHEM and I'm like thinking, if I get through this and I'm going to take the DAT <laughs> and I'm going to apply, see what happens. And luckily everything just worked out where, you know, after that summer, got through the interview process and, and got in. So, uh, so it was it just one of those things that happened kind of fast, but I was so happy that I made that transition from decision, yeah. business to healthcare. And, and I'm glad that I... I chose dentistry over over other healthcare fields right now, especially with all the all the mess that's in healthcare. I feel like dentistry yeah. gives you the option of, you know, being able to help a lot of patients, but at the same time, be able to really show the the business side of, of your uh, you know creativity. Yeah, it really is the best of both worlds in that regard that you get to have so much time and and room to kind of. You know, express yourself in the uh, entrepreneurial and business sense of things, and be a small business owner, really, which is pretty exciting. So that must have been a pretty hard, pretty hard transition, like going from a business undergrad to all of a sudden like taking organic chemistry and biochemistry, trying to trying to like switch your brain to understand all those in preparation for dental school. So when you when you finished up dental school, you know, when did the financial side of things really kick off for you? Like, was that something that you started in undergrad when you're business major, or like when did you start to start investing and and learning more about the financial literacy type side of things? Yeah, so I was always interested in in business. Um, I think it was my sophomore year in, in business school when I opened my uh, first brokerage account. It was kind of funny because I was just, you know, sitting there watching CNBC. And I'm like, this show is kind of cool. And and I just said, okay, I got to look into some of these stocks that are being mentioned. So I started researching these stocks yeah. and started looking into opening a brokerage account. So within a week or so after that, opened a brokerage account. This was when I was 20. I'm 35 now. And, you know, ever since then, I've just never really had lack of interest when it comes to the stock market, investing, talking about retirement options. Um, so it was just one of those things where I just felt like it was natural to me, um, not because I was a undergrad business major, but it was just one of those things that I've always been interested in, in trying to understand the concept of money, how it works, you know, why it works, how to make it work for you in, in your retirement years. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's a really important point. I remember I was listening to a podcast a while back um, and they had a financial advisor on and he would come on and say, oh, you know, doctors are notoriously like not good with money. And they had like a, they said MD is like equivalent for like money dumb because they, oh, like, they don't know their stuff at all. So um, I think it's really cool. And, I, and that's why I'm excited to have you on today because I want to kind of, you know, touch on like, you know, a few of the broader topics that a lot of people face when they graduate and, and see sort of what your priority is. And it's not necessarily like, you know, in depth into the numbers, but just like philosophy of, you know, okay, when should we prioritize loans? When should we prioritize investments? So let's, let me just, I guess, make up like a fixed situation and then kind of see how you would approach it. And we'll kind of dive into mm -hmm. that from that lens. So 
you know, typical, typical grad is, you know, a lot of the international students here in Australia from, from Canada, for example, a lot of the American graduates, you know, we're graduating with like 300 grand plus in debt. So we're coming out, we got, you know, roughly, and in Canada, we have a line of credit that students get. So it's not like a government loan or anything like that. So it's a line of credit and it's not like a set loan that you got to make set payments. So you can just pay minimum payments if you want. Interest rates have gone up a little bit. So it's about a 5% now. So, you know, roughly mm-hmm. to service the loan, you're looking at like 14, 15 grand a year just to make minimum payments. So, yeah. And you come out and you get a good associate. You're lucky you're making 150 grand a year, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you begin to work through your financial situation at this point? So you're making like decent money. You can, you know, kind of make the loan disappear with 15 grand a year. So you have money to invest or buy a practice or buy a house. Yeah. How would you begin to kind of think about these things in all the moving parts? Yeah. So, you know, back in the day when the loans weren't as much, um, like you said, three to four hundred thousand dollars is not out of the question at all. Nowadays, I felt like the focus should have been on on reducing your debt as much as possible, as fast as possible, and then kind of focus on the whole retirement savings investing. Yeah. But things have changed. Things have changed, not necessarily for the worse, but it's just, they've changed, they're different. So I think as long as we shift our priority on how we allocate that money, we can still reach that financial independence. We can still reach that, those goals that we have. It's just that how you allocate some of that money has to be a little bit different. Yeah. And especially with three to $400,000, being able to make minimum payments actually makes a lot of sense because what you're doing is you're still trying to pay down some of that debt, but you're also allocating some money towards investments, some money towards your savings goals, so many towards retirement planning. And the biggest concept, you know, as we all know, the time value of money is so, so important. Yeah. It's such a key component to growing your wealth. So if you start investing, you know, in your 20s and 30s versus in your 40s and 50s, I mean, that makes a huge difference. And that's where I feel like it's not as feasible to focus on just debt reduction nowadays. It's more important to do a little bit of everything. So you dabble a little bit in debt reduction, you dabble a little bit in, in uh, investments, savings. So you recommend to, to split up the, pot, the, the pie a little bit and just kind of put certain amounts into each thing at, um, at the same time? Absolutely. How about, so how about in the sense of investments, you know, early on in your career, and this is something I've been like struggling with as well. So say, you know, you, the tax year comes around and you've, you've saved up and you have all of a sudden like 30, 40 grand that you thought you have to pay tax, but you don't have to because you savings and deductions and all that. So you get a, right. a, a nice like lump of money after like maybe one year of work and you're not sure what to do with it. And you know, and, and in the past I was like, okay, maybe I'll invest this. I'll get a decent return. Nowadays, now that I'm working a little bit, I'm, I'm realizing necessarily that maybe the best ROI may be to invest clinically to you know, improve your skills, maybe learn implants or learn ortho or something. How about that? When does that side of things of like, let's just work on maybe increasing your income first or maybe buy a practice uh, yeah, priority over those other things of investing? I, I definitely think so. And, and at, you know, we all talk about the, uh, the ROI on stocks, you know, ROI on savings accounts. And, and that's really small compared to what you get out of that by investing in yourself. That's such a small amount. You know, getting 5 10% on your money invested is, is one thing. But to think about investing that money in yourself and getting 500 to 1,000, 10,000% return on, your, on that money is huge. Most graduates don't have the, the training on how to place implants or how to do good endo on, or how to do even good restorative 
work. Yeah. You know, we're basically given a piece of paper that says, Hey, here's a license yeah. practice dentistry, but it doesn't say practice good dentistry. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say you can place implants. It doesn't say you can do good oral surgery. So we really have to focus on developing yourself first, investing in yourself first, because if you don't have the speed, if you don't have the clinical knowledge to work on providing patients good care, none of that stuff matters because your income is kind of, it just becomes stagnant. It doesn't grow because you're like, Hey, I know these basic skills yeah, and I can't really grow my income because I know how to do fillings. Maybe I know how to do cleanings, all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's basically it. But when you start investing in yourself and focusing on some of those more complicated procedures that can have a high ROI and the fact that not everyone else is doing the same thing out there. That's right. So then you start to differentiate yourself from your peers and, and, and competition essentially, and you're able to actually make more money and serve more patients. Yeah, so I think it's like um, Tarun Agarwal who runs like the T-Bone Speaks uh, podcast, he always says you need to kind of move on from doing like dental school dentistry if you want to really start making good money in your practice. So um, really invest in you know ortho or implants or you know cosmetics and to really elevate the income potential so you can actually have more money to kind of do other things with and, and invest. So true, yeah, so true. I mean, you know, working on Single tube dentistry can get exhausting yeah. and, and what you're essentially doing is you fix one problem then something else arises you fix that problem something else comes up um, but to be able to give your patients a more comprehensive treatment plan and figure out what their needs are figure out the plan work with your team on coming up with the the financing for them because the truth is most people aren't sitting around with ten fifteen thousand dollars yeah in their pocket hey, I need all this dental treatment done and I'll get it done. Yeah, They need help from maybe their insurance, which is fairly minimal for the most part, but they also need help from our, our team that basically helps them figure out how insurance works, how finances work, how the financing part of that works. So at the end of the day, you know, it's not just where the dentist is the only person that's making a difference. It's the whole team that's making a, making a big difference. And communication is so big. Yeah, When you help patients understand what they need, why they need, they're more likely to to say yes to to their oral health. That's great. So in terms of the investment side of things, what do you recommend as like a pathway for, you know, obviously some people just, you know, could care less and they just want to find someone like a brokerage company or um, a financial advisor that can just take it for them and, and they just want to be passive investors and just mm -hmm. put the money in and that's fine for them. They're happy. If someone wants to be a little bit more active, they want to buy their own, they want to manage their own portfolio. How, how do you recommend people learn about these things to be confident to do that? Absolutely. So, you know, I think there are so many articles out there that talk about the basics of investing. Um, the more you read, the better you're at. I mean, once you have the clear foundation of why you should be investing early on, why you should take some of those steps to do things now. Yeah. Budgeting is such a key component of all of that. And, and I always say, you know, pay yourself first. And yeah. when you talk about the expenses category of your, of your budgeting, you know, you have an expenses for your mortgage, you have expenses for your food, car payments, insurance, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What if you created another category for investments and you treat that investment category as expense, and you basically tell yourself that I've got to put away this much per month in this category because it's an expense. I don't have a choice. Then you work your way down and you force yourself to spend the rest of the money on all those other things that we just talked about. So from the standpoint of trying to figure out how to learn some of that stuff, you know, a lot of times I think initially when we're starting off, 
it makes a lot of sense to keep things as simple as possible. Yeah. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to get into alternative investments unless we have, you know, so much more excess cash that we can take bigger risks. Mm-hmm. But initially, index funds provide a great deal of, of liquidity. They provide a great deal of diversification. And, and they really kind of, you know, let you write the market, you know, whether it's going up, whether it's going down and taking advantage of dollar cost averaging. So you take a little bit of money each month and you're putting it into some kind of index fund that you researched, you made sure that it's gonna work for you. And I think for younger adults, a lot of times we talk about, you know, balancing. For me, I feel like, you know, if you're under the age of 40, 45, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to to balance things into bonds. Mm-hmm. Just because, I mean, the return on that is so minimal yeah. and we're young. I mean, we have, you know, there's a lot of time that we can spend on on those, the investing career. So if you're under, under the age of 45, I mean, you can basically allocate most of your money in the stock market from the stock standpoint, equities, and then balancing it out in different kind of fund categories, you know, whether it's large cap or small cap, mid cap and international funds. Some of that, even just finding the allocation, there's some good examples online that go that go over some of that stuff. Yeah. So with the cost dollar averaging, if so, if you're so say every month at the end of it, you pay yourself like two thousand dollars. You know, like, I'm gonna put this two thousand dollars in. Yeah. Would you? So you're buying the same like index fund or ETF? You're just putting more of it, or you're buying different types every time? Yeah, pretty much the same. So once you have decided that okay, I'm gonna be allocating, you know, twenty five percent of the of my money in large caps. 25% in mid caps, 25% in small caps, mm-hmm. and maybe 25% international. Let yeah. whatever that category, whatever that percentage breakdown is, you basically do the same thing every month. Now, I do believe in the fact that it's we should take advantage of some of those big sell-offs. So, kind of like the one that we had in December and yeah. and I got a lot of messages from people that they took advantage of some of those uh, some of that sell-off back in December. So, you do keep some extra cash on hand. And when events like that happen, you're able to accelerate that investing, okay, so which is, which is kind of nice. Now you're able to really buy low mm-hmm. on some of those funds that you've been investing in. But you say, hey, look, I had another you know, $10,000 sitting around. I'm going to go ahead and, and put this money in, in the market now. And you don't necessarily know if that's the right time, but you know that you know, over the last, let's say, six to eight weeks, the market had gone down 8 to 10% you know, it seems like maybe the sell-off is, is overly done. So you're, yeah. you're taking a chance, but you're, you're taking a calculated risk. You're not just blindly putting money in. You're taking a calculated risk at that point. And what's your opinion on individual stocks? Is that something that shouldn't be touched for the, the, like the newbie uh, investor or? Yeah. So, you know, I, I personally do some uh, individual stocks and I, I enjoy it, but I, I do research the heck out of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I basically keep a list of less than 50 stocks that I'm looking at and, uh, and really research the heck out of them, you know, if it makes sense to buy them or not. But generally speaking, I don't necessarily say that that's the right move for a lot of people because when it takes time to, to research, when it takes time to really make sure what you're buying is, is going to pay off. I mean, just think about it this way, you know, out of those um, 50 stocks, you decide, okay, I'm going to put that money in two of them. Yeah. And both of them end up having bad earnings and they tank. And, and this is happening now. I mean, look at some of these stocks that are barely missing and they're tanking yeah. 15, 20% just like that. So in an essence, I don't think that's a, that's a good risk strategy. Yeah. But if you know that you've done your due diligence, if you know that the company has good long-term prospects, not trading it for the, for the sake of, you know, trying to make 10, 15% in a short term, 
and then selling it. But individual stocks do make sense if you know the long term that this company has has a good balance sheet, it has good prospects, they have good they have good pipeline for their future revenues. Yeah, it makes sense. But at the same time, though, when you buy an index fund, you're basically buying, you know, let's say if the S&P 500, you're buying basically essentially a group of 500 some stocks. Yeah, so that safer. Safer. You're hedging your risk against some of those big movements. Because some of these stocks that had 15, 20% down movements in just one to two days after the earnings announcement, they actually were part of the S&P 500. They are part of the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. So the S&P 500 didn't drop as much. So essentially, I mean, you're, you are really hedging your risk by, by diversifying that, that risk all the way across 500 some stocks. Yeah. So what's the, the argument or counter argument for, for example, being like, okay, so for someone who's just new to the stock market or investing that comes in and says, Okay, well, obviously, I'm just going to buy Google and Amazon because they're just obviously going to do really well over the next like five, ten years. Is there what counter arguments is there to that? Is it because it's an expensive entry point, or yeah? So the the price of the stock itself doesn't matter. You know, you can have a stock that's trading at five bucks and it could be very expensive, and you can have a stock that's trading at fifteen hundred dollars and yeah. it could be inexpensive. But part of it is is that managing that risk. I mean, just for example, if we look at Google and, and Amazon, you know, now the government claims like, hey, they're so big. There's all this anti-competitive, antitrust yeah. issues. We need to kind of control how big they get. And things like that, you know, do have an effect on them short term and they could have an effect on them long term. So the the argument would really be, you know, if you're if you believe in the company and if you know that this company is going to do well long term, you know, by all means invest a little bit of money in there. Don't put a huge chunk of your portfolio. Maybe you say, okay, I'm gonna allocate 10, 15% of my overall money towards individual stocks. Yeah. That's okay. But if you say, Hey, I'm going to be allocating 80, 90% of my money towards individual stocks, that might be too risky because you just don't know when, when they do have those downturns, are they going to be like that for six months, a year, or are they going to be in that downturn for a number of years? And that's kind of where, where it's hard. I mean, I'll give you an example of, of Microsoft, yeah. you know, for the longest time, it felt like the stock was just doing nothing. Yeah. And then just within the last few years, it's more than doubled. So people that bought that stock for the long haul, a lot of people probably ended up selling that stock thinking, well, this isn't, isn't doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> now it's, it's actually, you know, one of the best stocks out there, at least for, for the time being. Yeah. So with Google, you know, again, the, the counter argument is, you know, Google has a huge market for uh, the ad space. But now the government steps in, says, "Hey, this is this is not this is not cool. Uh, it's becoming a monopoly. We've got to tame you down a little bit." Yeah. So now the stock starts to uh, have a decline because of that. So it's really hard to. Um, To within individual stocks, it's really hard to time the market on them. Yeah, and I think is there a sense that a lot of the growth has already happened, so you're not you're buying into it like you're late in the game to get into that. Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing is you know depending on who you talk to, some people would say you know Google's already had a lot of that growth as a large cap company, mm-hmm. whereas some people say well Google's so undervalued right now because. They're just scratching the the online ad space. Even though, like, I mean, they the online ad space has grown yeah. ridiculously big. I mean, we look at all these messages we get nowadays that hey, I'm a 
digital marketer and yeah <laughs> and linkedin yeah. <laughs> yeah so but no truly the online space has has grown so much yet some people believe that it is still it is just getting started so uh, so it's it'll be interesting to see how that that really plays out over the next few years yeah and how about the like other things so for example like the cryptocurrency side of things that's obviously a lot of people don't know too much about or a little bit maybe intimidated by it like the blockchain technology and stuff like you feel like you don't fully understand what it is or how it works have you started like dabbling in that at all yeah so so for disclosure purposes i mean i did buy some bitcoin and i sold it you know basically i, I think i bought it back in december and i ended up selling it like literally a day after april fools yeah because no one could figure out like what what caused bitcoin to go from you know where it was back in december yeah to april up 25 some percent just like that no reason behind it no news yeah so i was like you know what i think i'm just gonna sell this does this doesn't make sense and of course like by now it's gone up like another yeah, 70 since then so <laughs> so for me i think blockchain does make a lot of sense but what we don't understand, what we don't know is, is cryptocurrency, is Bitcoin the one that's going to emerge out of this or what, what is it going to be? Yeah. Um, so you don't really hear a lot about some of those other currencies that were being discussed back then, like Litecoin and yeah. Ethereum and Ripple and I don't know, some of the other ones. But Bitcoin still has obviously a lot of that, that market share when it comes to crypto. But, you know, and, uh, companies like JP Morgan and, and Facebook, they brought up crypto before and they said they want to have some kind of platform that can be used. So I think it is in our future. Uh, we just don't know how that's going to play out. Yeah. IBM is a big player in blockchain and, and they believe in, in all that transparency, but how that's going to work with the currency portion of that is, is yet to be determined. I feel like. Yeah. Has there been any incorporation into like day-to-day -day life with cryptocurrency? Like do people use it for on a like, daily transactional basis at this point or? Yeah. I mean, personally, I haven't come across, you know, any patients saying like, Hey, do you accept crypto? <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think there, there are a few dental offices I've out seen there. It. Yeah. I don't know if it's like, like a meme or if it's like an actual thing, but. <laughs> yeah. They have a little sticker crypto yeah. Bitcoin here kind of thing. And, and I've seen some pictures like random pictures of just places out there in some of the bigger cities uh, like New York, San Fran, yeah. where businesses will put up those signs that they accept crypto. So I'm not sure if anyone's actually using it. Yeah. No, actually, I'll tell you what, though. Um, since I'm in Ohio, one of the reasons I bought Bitcoin was because literally two or three days before I bought, the, I bought Bitcoin, the Ohio, I think it was Secretary of State that said that you can pay your taxes, the Ohio taxes, really? your real estate taxes with Bitcoin. Nice. So it was kind of strange. Yeah. And I actually thought that it was some, it was a, pretty bold move for them to actually say um, to start accepting it. Yeah. But I don't think it took, uh, took off at all. Um, I felt like, so I kind of started following the news pretty closely. Are other states going to start accepting Bitcoin? But that wasn't the case. So, so I was kind of disappointed when that, when that happened. Yeah. Um, so we'll see if the government gets into it and if they, if they start to maybe accept Bitcoin. And wasn't there meant to be a, like a Bitcoin ETF that was supposed to hit the market? sometime this year that was supposed to be like a pretty big deal like what happened yeah, to that so, i'm not sure what happened to that because i actually um had a patient from fidelity that that talked about it too and and fidelity was supposed to get into it and i think they still are but things have been a little bit slower than than they they seem they're gonna go so yeah so we'll see we'll see how that plays out yeah it's always fun i think it's one of those things where with investments like no one truly knows, like even if the, the top experts, like they can have a more educated guess at what's going to happen, but yeah. it's like, it's anyone. I think I've literally seen targets from, 
zero dollars all the way up to what five hundred thousand yeah. dollars i think yeah so it's kind of insane so i just uh, it, and, that, and that just goes to show you i mean think about this though you know from an investment standpoint you invest in things that you believe can provide you a good return on your money yeah with riskier investments like this when we don't know how that's going to play out i mean that's a lot of risk to take yeah i mean that's a lot of risk to say hey i'm going to put in you know fifty thousand dollars in bitcoin and i have no idea if it's going to go to zero or if it's going to go to five hundred thousand of course, if it goes to five hundred thousand dollars, yeah, you know that that person's gonna look like the smartest person on earth. Yeah, but that's a big risk to take, um, and that's why I think diversifying your investments is such a key thing. You know, you're not just diversifying it in in the stock market in different funds in different categories, but you can diversify in other categories in investments, such as real estate is a big one. You know, that's a hard asset that you can measure. You can basically say, okay, I, I bought some rental properties. I've looked into, you know, this is what the cash flow comes out of it each month. So you can measure that kind of performance, right? Yeah. But with Bitcoin, I mean, you're just relying on what the market dictates on what its value is. And a lot of it is on speculation. You know, it just, to me, it doesn't make sense to put a big portion of your money. Yeah. Maybe if someone says like, Hey, I'm willing to take this risk. I might put in two or 3% of my money in, in Bitcoin. Yeah. Great. See. But don't put a big chunk of that and then regret that you lost it all. Yeah. A friend of mine is like, I, I'll never be able to live with, with myself if it goes up to like a hundred grand. So he's like, I'll have some money in there. If I lose it, I lose it. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, you have to put money in there that you know that if you lost it all, yeah. you won't, you won't be upset about. Yeah. It won't affect your lifestyle or your, your uh, savings too much. So how about real estate? Cause I know it's interesting because as an outsider looking into the U S cause you see like, there's like 25 year olds that own like 10 houses cause the housing, yeah. I mean, cause the U S is obviously such a wide and big country with so many different little pockets and different price points. And, um, so if you're living in like New York, like a 25 year old is not going to have 10 properties just cause of the property prices. But, um, I guess yeah. if you're like in the middle of the country where there's maybe not as much demand or, um, prices are a bit more affordable. Like you can buy a house for like $70,000 or something. It seems like, which is not realistic in Australia, definitely. And in Canada and the big cities. Yeah. So apart from like buying your own primary residence, what's your thoughts on like residential investments for like young people? I feel like it's a little bit more of a barrier to entry because in the stock market, like you said, you can have $20 and buy four stocks of something. But maybe the res like with residential, you put 10% down, 20% down. It's a little bit harder to kind of enter that space. So what's your thoughts around the invest uh, residential investments? Yeah. So I think again, that in that part of investment kind of comes in maybe a little bit later on, once you've kind of established a base, once you've established the foundation on, on your savings, you know, that includes having an emergency fund. And, and, you know, when I talk about savings and, and investing, I actually want to tie in a little bit about insurance in there as well, because I think a lot of us don't think about insurance as, as an investment in, in ourselves, just because, you know, if something happens to us, I mean, what are we really saving for? We're saving for our future. We're saving for our family. Yeah. So if something happens to us, um, you know, are we going to be able to provide that kind of lifestyle to our family members and ha having a good disability insurance policy is such a key thing for, for dentists yeah. because things happen, you know, and you really have to make sure that you can still earn some kind of income if you're sick or if you are, if you're not able to practice dentistry. So besides having that foundation of making sure you have a savings account, making sure you have your emergency savings built up, your retirement plan have, have started, and then comes your, the real estate. You know, some people don't believe in the stock market at all, which is, yeah, okay. but I think some of that should come on a little bit later on. But yeah, I feel like real estate is a is an amazing tool to grow grow your wealth. And and again, part of that is, you know, as long as you can diversify the type of investments that you have out there, 
real estate makes a lot of sense. I mean, I personally invest in real estate. I have three round properties in, in Columbus and, and they've done really well. I mean, the market has appreciated, so that's worked out well. And the cash flow on those is, is really good per month. Yeah. And, but on, on the other hand, I have seen some of the prices that have just gone up and make, makes no sense. I mean, the cap rates have come yeah. down. So you're like, does this really make sense to, to buy this property now? And it doesn't, I just actually just looked at some yesterday. Yeah. The cash flow kind of made sense. Um, so we're, you know, I'm doing a little bit more research on that, but I've been looking for the last 18 months and I haven't really found anyone that has made a lot of sense from the numbers standpoint. So the yeah. real estate prices have gone up. And again, I think like you just said, real estate market is so local that you can have properties that are so overvalued right now and absolutely makes no sense to buy, but they're still getting sold. Um, and there are yeah. <laughs> properties that are so undervalued and they sometimes sit there, no one wants to buy them because of the location, you know? So, and I think part of the yeah. issue is also when you think about real estate, it's not just buying an overvalued or undervalued property, but it's the cash flow that comes out of it, right? So if you have a property that you think is undervalued, but you can't rent it out, you can't lease it out, does it really make sense to buy it? You know, the cash flow is what determines if it's going to be undervalued or, or overvalued at that point. Henry Shine 360 is a loyalty program like no other. Not only is it free to join, you can also enjoy thousands of dollars of savings year after year. On average, a two-chair practice can save a minimum of $15,000 a year by taking advantage of a cash rebate every month. Product discount and generous savings from our program partners. If you aren't a member yet and you're looking to join either, contact your Henry Shine territory manager or send an email to shine360 at henryshine.com.au. That's shine360 at henryshine.com.au. Don't spend thousands of dollars every year on similar programs. Join Henry Shine 360 and watch your practice grow. So, yeah, that's interesting because I've been, I've, I'm obviously in Melbourne. The, it's a, one of the, it's a pretty expensive city, obviously, to live in with re- the, the prices and the rent. Um, rent is quite high, but we have a thing. I mean, it's pretty rare here to, for example, put down like 20% even to buy an apartment or a condo or a townhouse and have it be like cash flow positive to the point that people do it. They buy these investments because they have a thing called like negative gearing. So the difference between the mortgage payment that you owe on the property and the amount that you rent the property out for, mm-hmm. that's, that's tax deductible as like a loss. So it's pretty interesting when you hear like, yeah, the, the way the pricing works in the US where some, you maybe might be even be able to afford the with the 20% that I would put down to buy an apartment here, you can like buy a house outright. Yeah. Uh, so there's not even a mortgage on there. So you can just have like obviously positive cash flow from the start. So it's interesting that that exists in some parts of the world or in even some states in the, in the uh, US and not others. So to wrap, so to kind of just to kind of, I guess, summarize a few of these points. So you're saying, you know, you're coming out of school, you're making some decent money. Now, the smartest way is to kind of diversify, like you're in, like diversify into investments, into paying off your loan a little bit, personal savings and insurance, and not to really just go really heavy into any of these one categories. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the take home message really is to diversify your your money as much as possible because you start focusing on one thing then you really start to lose your your focus on other things and nowadays just because the way our environment is with so much debt and and still trying to focus on you know having a family having investments having savings you kind of don't want to just focus on one thing and not be able to to get get to the other ones in a timely manner so 
So really the take home message is to make sure you at least sit down, you know, whether it's sitting down by yourself, sitting down with your spouse, sitting down with, with your financial advisor, kind of figuring out yeah. what the game plan is. And you basically draw up that plan. Maybe it's three years out, five years out, 10 years out. What am I really trying to achieve over the next, next few years or so? And then you basically yeah. have goals. You say, okay, my goal is to pay off this debt in the next 15, 20 years. So you basically come up with those payment plans that that's going to work for you. Same thing with retirement. You know, if your goal is that you want to have half a million dollars in savings in, in the next 10 years or so, you know, what do you have to do to get to that number? Um, and you start doing yeah. projections at the end of the day, you know, it's just projections. Doesn't mean that it's going to get there. You might blow past through those, or you might not, not get those, not get there at all, but at least you have a game plan in mind. And then again, working with someone that's actually going to, you know, help you get there. There are a lot of people that are kind of do-it-yourself type of people. They do really well. And there are people that just want the help. They just need the help. It doesn't mean that they don't know. It just means that they can probably focus their time more on doing the dentistry. Because, I mean, we just talked about this earlier, that the ROI that you get from dentistry is so much greater than the yeah. ROI that you get from investing in some kind of stock or investing in some kind of uh, you know index fund and whatnot. So, again, part of the issue with investing in yourself is that it's your two hands that's that's doing the dentistry so you have to kind of rely on yourself and that's why diversifying that portion of that makes a lot of sense too because you know if something happens to you are your investments going to be able to provide you enough passive income to live off of so it's there's just no one thing that makes sense i think it's a little bit of everything that that makes a lot more sense yeah. And how soon would you, so one thing I've always heard in these like business podcasts and stuff that you hear with dentistry focus is a lot of people say, buy your practice before you buy your house. What do you think about that sentiment? Yeah. So I think it, it really, I think the answer is it depends depending on what your personal feelings are. Some people say, look, I really want to live in this particular city. Yeah. If that's what their goal is, then they're probably going to have to basically possibly compromise on what kind of practice they get. Yeah, maybe they get lucky, they get a great practice, and then they buy a house. But it really just depends on, on what their goals are. Um, if they have found a nice house, it does sometimes kind of prevents them from moving then, um, possibly. They yeah. might say, well, I already bought a house here. I've got to try to buy a practice here. Um, so, yeah, in an essence, I do agree that it makes a lot more sense to figure out where you're going to be practic practicing. You purchase a practice, and then you work your way of, of buying a house for me, uh, personally, I think what we ended up doing was once I found this practice in Cincinnati, we just asked a little bit more time with the seller so we could find a house and, and buy a, our house first. Because especially with most banks, I think it's two years or so that they want you to have a consistent cash flow to give you a yeah. loan. And I didn't want to take that kind of risk. I was like, okay, I've got the savings 20% down. I want to just use use that to buy the house now and not have to live in an apartment or so. So for us, like we just worked with the seller, asked for a little bit extra time while the, the closing of the house was going through and it worked out really good. So in an essence, I, I do agree that you should find where you're going to be working, you know, as long as it's a, it's a reasonable area where you can find happiness, be content with where, um, with the type of practice you want to run. So so like, so it's more so of a practicality type thing. It's not really like a financial difference maker, whether you buy a house first or buy the yeah, practice Yeah, I think it, it truly depends on, on one situation. I'll tell you this though. I mean, you know, I have some friends that have bought practices in, in small towns and they've done really well financially. And then they've chosen to maybe live in a bigger city. Maybe it's 45 minutes, an hour outside of, the, of their practice. And they're completely content with that. Whereas there are people that say, hey, look, I want to practice. I don't want to live an hour away from a practice. I'm going to buy a house maybe 10 minutes down the road. 
and they, yeah. they end up doing that. So it really just depends. Um, at the end of the day, you should really kind of figure out, you know, where do you see yourself living? Where do you see yourself practicing? And if, if all of that makes sense, then, then you just go for it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the uh, Dental Investment Group on Facebook. Uh, obviously, it's, it's really active. It's such a great resource. You know, I enjoy going on there and kind of seeing the comments and kind of learning a you know, few things. If anything, you know, people list their stock and you like look it up and you're interested in like, oh, what's going on? Why are they kind of recommending it? Um, and I think it's like last time I checked, it was over like 10,000 members, which is a nice little community there. So tell me a little bit about that, like how it started and what are, what are your plans for it for the future? Yeah, so it, it, was, it was actually really fun starting that. I, um, it, was, it was about two years ago. I just remember a lot of people were asking me questions on retirement planning, investments, and savings, all that kind of stuff. Once they yeah. got into dentistry, once they started to you know have the, that income where they were saving more more than they thought. Yeah. So I said, well, let's just start some kind of small group that that can allow us to talk about this stuff, collaborate with each other, and um, yeah. it was just people adding their friends and them adding their friends, and it just slowly grew grew to. Uh, 10,000 members. It's been yeah. a lot of fun. I've actually, you know, I feel like I learned something every day from that, from that group. Um, there's, there are a lot of smart people on there. A lot of people are asking questions about their personal situations. They're, you know, they're asking things that can make their lives better. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed interacting and gotten to meet some, some people that are super smart and just really, you know, help you and guide you. And so it's, it's been real nice. Perfect. And what do you plan for it for the future? Yeah. So not, no major plans right now. I mean, you know, I, I do it for fun. Um, we've started to host some webinars on that. That's been, that's been nice. Um, the goal is yeah. to really work on um, trying to basically keep making the group better as much as possible, keep working with dentists that need help. So it's, it's been pretty rewarding to know that you're able to help other people achieve their dreams. You know, I'll get messages every single day. You know, what should I do for this situation, that situation I worked with dentists one-on-one yeah. -on -one to just really kind of figure out their plan, you know, tailor their plan to their situation and really come up with a solution for them that works in practical solutions. You know, I'm kind of like one of those like short and sweet to the point. I don't want to BS. I want to just, yeah. you know, waste their time, my time, just tell them like, this is what I think. This is what you can do. And it's not just financials in terms of like investments. I mean, it's really kind of tailoring their personal situations from practice, whether they're an associate, whether they're an owner, maybe they're looking to buy a practice, maybe they're looking to start a retirement plan. So it's kind of like doing this coaching with them one-on-one, -on -one, but really just focusing on their personal situation. Because there's, there's really no one size fits all. I mean, yeah, there's generalizations, but at the end of the day, everyone's life is so different and they really just need, need guidance and plan. And it's not something, you know, most people I believe in that once you teach them the basics, the foundation, they can do a lot of this stuff on their own. And that's what I like to focus on is that, you know, most people don't need some kind of handholding all their lives. They just want a good plan that they can follow, kind of recharge and, and re-energize a few years later. So uh, it's, been, it's been fun talking yeah. to so many people and really gotten to, to know some of these folks. That's great. I think it's a great service. And I think it's something that uh, is really valuable because, you know, unlike yourself, who did a business undergrad, a lot of us have like not much background in that. Right. And then we come into the workforce and we're making some money and we're like, okay, what now? Like, what do I do with it? How do I save yeah. it properly? How do I plan for my future? So what's your, what's your kind of, I guess for yourself, like your long-term career plans, like do you hope to retire at a certain age? Or like what's your, yeah, kind so, of you know, I'm a, I'm a numbers guy. So I like to, yeah to be able to see, okay, what I'm doing right now, what could I be doing in, in five years, 10 years? So my personal plan, I mean, I like dentistry. I like being able to help patients and, 
and just enjoying the process. So for me, I feel like, you know, I'll continue to do that for, for a while. From the, st- the number standpoint, I'm like thinking, okay, I could probably be done with that at some point in my 40s. You know, should I leave dentistry or, or do I? And I don't know the answer. I mean, I think a lot of it just is going to depend on, you know, what things are at that point in time and, and kind of go from there. But I really do enjoy, you know, both aspects. I mean, I, I love working with dentists kind of one-on-one, but at the same time, I, I love the the aspect of doing clinical dentistry, um, serving patients, being able to do some complicated procedures. So it's, it's a lot of fun being able to do both. And would you, are you like a one super practice type of guy or a multi-practice owner? Like what's, what's more in your future, do you think? Yeah, so just one right now. And I'll tell you this. I remember I was graduating dental school and I said, yeah, I want to buy a practice within a year of, of graduating dental school and I'm going to own multiple practices, all that kind of stuff. And then I realized that you know, while some of that is true, yeah, there are folks that own uh, multiple practices. They, they make a great living, um, but it comes with a lot of stress also. For me, what I found was, you know, if I could supercharge my practice in just one practice and really take it, you know, maximize its ability to produce as much as possible, maximize its ability to, um, to really serve as many patients as possible, yeah. that would be more rewarding for me than to dabble in, in multiple practices. And I, on the other hand, I mean, I know folks that own multiple practices and they're like, God, I just want to get out of this. Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I don't know why I'm into it. So for us, I mean, it's just been that one practice and I've been able to supercharge it. I've been able to, to do well with it. So for now, just going to continue to do that and, and we'll see where the future is. I mean, sometimes opportunities come along yeah. and it, I'd say, yeah, this, this makes sense to, to go after that second one. That's awesome. I think, I think it's great. I think it's, it's important to have those goals in place and have those numbers down as well. And like you said earlier, I think, you know, having financial goals, like any other goals is important to have something to like actually work towards. Cause if every month you get your paycheck, you're like, okay, I guess I'll put this much aside. And there's no like bigger picture in mind. Then it's hard to kind of actually like have anything to kind of aim for and, and make sure, make sure you're kind of staying on track with it as well. Yeah, so no, I, I, I definitely uh, believe in, in having a lean practice that the overhead is controlled, you're making good money, serving a lot of patients. I feel like I know a lot of patients or, or people that have bought it, multiple practices and they're just like, God, I can't handle this. I want to get out of this, work on one practice that can really provide you the, the maximum ROI and, and go from there. That's great. So I like to normally wrap these things up with a bit of a, a rapid fire. So let's get into that. What is your, uh, what's your favorite pizza topping? My favorite pizza topping. Pizza. Yeah. Um, I like cheese. Cheese. <laughs> and uh, what is your, what's your favorite uh, tooth to work on? Oh, number 19. And what's one procedure that makes you question your uh, career choice in dentistry? Sometimes working on um, that, that two and 15. Yeah. With, with that big, big, big muscle you're trying to pull on it you're trying to work on on the distal aspect of that you're like yeah. oh god how do i how do we get through this get this part today yeah and uh, if you weren't in dentistry what career would you be in i think that's that's probably an easy one i think i would do something in uh in the financial world probably some kind of uh um investment banking or advising CPA kind of thing. What's your favorite band or artist? Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a tough one. I like Coldplay a lot. I uh, listen yeah. to a lot of music. So, uh, so that's yeah, good. Great. Awesome. Sunny, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. I know it's, uh, 
it's a you know pretty broad topic, so it's kind of hard to dive into a lot of things in a lot of detail in like a space of an hour. But what I wanted, was hoping to get out of this was like a little bit of a framework of like how you begin to even you know conceptualize these things. I like how you broke it down. You so you know what I kind of took away from this was try to diversify your money one and your investments like second. So make sure you put a little bit into each thing that you're kind of working towards be it saving for a house, be it, you know, be your own financial, like, like emergency funds, investments, student loans, and kind of make sure that you're kind of putting a little bit into each of those things. So you kind of take everything in with you at once. It's hard to kind of put all of everything in one basket. And then in 20 years, be like, oh, I haven't paid off anything or I haven't put any investments to the side for yeah. my retirement. So um, I think that's a lot of great value and a lot of great content. And also with the dental investment group, I'll obviously put a link in the show notes for people who might be interested in it because there's a lot of great, it's a great community on there. And you, there's always a, I like that it's active. So you put a question, you get a good feedback, a a wide range of different types of mentalities as well. It gets, it gets heated sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So it's not like everyone's like, Oh yeah, just go for it. Some people, if it's like, if it's not smart or in their opinion, it's not smart. They'll, they'll let you know about it for sure. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much.